Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. It's been 20 years since over 3,000 Americans died in the September 11th attacks. The solemn anniversary comes just weeks after the U.S. withdrew troops in Afghanistan and we witnessed the return of a Taliban government. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today on Disrupted, a panel of experts joins to discuss the new abortion law in Texas, the California recall election, and they'll share their reactions to the end of America's longest war. I'm joined by Bilal Sekou, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. Maya King is national politics reporter at Politico, and Janelle Wong is professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland. Bilal, Maya, and Janelle, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to be here. You know, this is a big week for American politics domestically and also internationally. The Senate is returning back from its break. We will hear some of the first hearings and testimony around Afghanistan and all of the questions that people have. And we also know that the Secretary of State will be appearing before the House and also the Senate. Maya, I want to start with you because you're a national politics reporter, but you really gauge the pulse of a number of issues and how they interconnect and intersect. What was your reaction when you first heard that the Taliban had taken control of Kabul and all of the questions about the U.S. deciding to withdraw at that time and what it could mean. What was your response? I think um, the first thing that I thought about when uh, we learned the news of, of the Taliban occupying Kabul was just how fast it took place. Many of us, when we learned first of uh, President Biden's intent to um, remove troops from Afghanistan, we understood this was years in the making. This was also something that former President Trump had expressed interest in seeing happen. He made a deal with the Taliban. Like we knew a lot of the context, but what we didn't know, I think, was just how quickly it would unfold and how um, the pace at which it did really went against a lot of what the administration officials were saying, what military personnel who were in these rooms and explaining this to the media were saying ahead of time. And it created a lot of, um, I guess, concern (laughs) and discord about what this means, not only for Afghanistan, but for Um, how Americans look abroad, um, our standing in the international community, and also domestic security and what that could mean um, for this country. Of course, you know, that was ahead of the the August 31st deadline. That was the big deadline that um, President Biden and his administration had put forward. But the deadline that I was thinking quite a bit about, which we, uh, I guess, saw on Saturday was September 11th, and what all of this means for the 20th anniversary um, of these attacks on 9-11 and sort of how Americans and particularly um, those in the administration will be taking stock um, of this moment, what they got right, what they got wrong. And it's of course very, very fresh on our minds because we're watching it, um, I guess the uh, direct consequences of all of these actions unfold really over the last month and kind of come to fruition in a moment of remembrance on Saturday. Bilal, let's talk about those two events, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but also the 20th anniversary of 9-11, because 
so much of the remembrance has been about the sense of patriotism, that coming together on September 12th for many Americans. But there are others who are saying, let's not overlook that often the coming together was built on a fear and an ignorance that targeted particular groups, whether they were members of the group in question or not. How do we hold that intention while also being aware, as Maya said, about the consequences of this withdrawal for U.S. safety domestically and internationally? I guess the first thing I would say is that, you know, unlike many Americans, I was actually more surprised by how surprised we actually were that the Taliban collapsed. I think that there was every indication if anyone really followed the developments in Afghanistan. Um, and certainly if you had remembered what happened in Iraq, there was every indication that we were not accomplishing the things that our leadership was telling us we were accomplishing in Iraq. And so in that sense, it should not have come as a shock to people that the government collapsed as quickly as it did. It, you know, I think what will happen in the years to come is that the congressional investigation, the research by reporters, for example, and others in the writings on this period will really un unveil to us a lot of things that will come as a great shock to us. And I think, you know, the other thing, I mean, 9-11, I, I remember like most people do where I was at when 9-11 um, happened. And it was something that really traumatized our country. And for the last 20 years, we've lived with that trauma. It greatly changed America, whether you're thinking about the growth of the surveillance state, you know, two wars that just seemed to not have an end, the loss of countless lives of people, both in Afghanistan and Iraq, and also American military personnel and really redefine America's role in the world with regard to this war on terror, whatever that exactly means. And so 20 years later, I think we've got a lot of questions as a, a country about, you know, whether we undertake these kinds of efforts again in the future, but at the same time, how do we protect the American people from what is a very real threat, not only internationally, but one that's also growing domestically. Janelle, let's talk about that protection and that protection of the American people, because one of the things that we've heard over this last year is the growing threat of homegrown terrorists, particularly in relation to white supremacy and how that poses an ever present danger in the United States, but also means that we need to reframe how we define protection. And a lot of that historically has been about the United States playing this role of the great protector for the rest of the world. Do you think that era is over or needs to be over and we need to focus inward? Or do you see these two types of threats as being interconnected? I mean, they are absolutely interconnected. And I think what is, is accompanying the discussion of the um, the memories and the, the kind of um, patriotism that is ignited by this 20th anniversary is this idea that we also have to remember that for 20 years we have lived in a heightened state of Islamophobia in the United States. And this crosses all racial groups. So, you know, there are Muslim American members of all racial groups in the United States, but particularly in the uh, MENA community, the Muslim and uh, the North African community. There's also Black Muslims, and there are a lot of Asian American Muslims also in the United States. And so I think we also, you know, one of the most poignant moments after 
9-11 was that the first person killed in an anti-Muslim hate crime was actually a South Asian American who was not Muslim, but was Indian American in Arizona. And I think, you know, this still haunts us. Other kinds of two other points around the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan, it has been very interesting to see how this has um, kind of ignited, I think, this shared experience across racial groups. So, for instance, we saw Vietnamese Americans, especially second generation Vietnamese Americans, really reacting uh, in a kind of um, emotional way to the need to accept Af Afghani refugees here in the United States. So we saw like in, in DC, a, a Vietnamese owned bakery was raising funds to um, for Afghani refugees. We saw uh, Pulitzer Prize winner Viet Nguyen write a very poignant article in the New York Times about the, the kind of parallels between those two communities. And then finally, I would say, I'd love to hear from Maya whether or not, you know, how long does this um, attention in the kind of public opinion of, of Americans last? Because I'm already starting to feel like it's how, you know, it hasn't, it doesn't have staying power in the consciousness, in the national consciousness, um, as even from last week. And so I'm just curious about that too. Maya, let's talk about that. You know, Americans seem to have a very short attention span, often because we are bombarded with stories. So we are no longer talking about the impact of Hurricane Ida on the Gulf Coast. And that was just two weeks ago because we've moved on to the next thing. Do you think that there is something different about this withdrawal or about the shadow of this long war that reporters and journalists will continue to cover or do you feel like we are one incident away or one storyline away from our attention shifting yet again? Well, I think the biggest difference between um, where we were on September 11th, 2001, where we are now is that we're watching it unfold, um, not only just on TV, but on social media. And that plays a huge role in our attention spans and ability to follow multiple storylines and figure out um, you know, very arbitrarily, which storylines get more attention, which ones matter more. And I was actually surprised and was talking about this with my colleagues um, by just how much content there was out there that was being followed and really um, harped on around September 11th. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising because this is a major milestone, the 20th anniversary. But I think what struck me was not only were we talking about it a lot, a lot of people were listening. It was not only on the airwaves, on TV, it was on the radio, and it was written about quite a bit. Um, and it was harped on a lot, not just um, the portion about this being a significant milestone, but the other big thing, which was this was a major in many ways, um, I'm trying to figure out the most diplomatic way to say this, but it was a huge moment for the Biden administration and that they kind of fell short of expectations of national expectations and how they were going to handle this withdrawal. And so there was a huge storyline there in the media of everyone saying, OK, we have something to hold the Biden administration accountable for. We have something to really amplify and magnify here with him, something that really in, in the eyes of many, he didn't quite get right. Um, and so that's another thing that, I, that I've been thinking quite a lot about. But also, I'm, I'm quickly going to put my campaign's hat on and say, like, we're heading into 2022, the midterms election season, and it's just going to be more of this, right? Where one week, the story feels like this is the defining feature of the campaign. This is what we expect to hear talked about a lot on the campaign trail 
I've already been hearing that around 9-11 and the Afghanistan withdrawal, that we can expect that to be something particularly that Republicans really play up um, and use as a campaign issue to make sure that they take back the House and the Senate. Um, but I, I imagine that will be the case every two weeks uh, for between now and next November, where we find an issue that has captured national attention. Perhaps the president has weighed in on it and it gives Republicans an, an opportunity to either spin it or Democrats to spin it one way or another to make it um, a big issue on the campaign trail. So it's it's very I, I think it's the environment that we live in now where it's just easy to get lost um, in multiple storylines. Uh, but hopefully <laughs> we'll be able to kind of separate, I guess, the wheat from the chaff as we get closer to what is, again, going to be an extremely pivotal um, election next year. Bilal Maya talked about the role of journalists and that very long road between now and the next election cycle. But as educators, we really have the opportunity to fill in that gap and provide that context. How do you think we should be teaching about these issues, not just now, but in the future, when we think about this long war, when we think about the fact that the students we have today, I will be dating myself, the students we have today were not even alive, many of them, when 9-11 happened, and yet it is so seared into our collective memory. How should this be taught in the future? I'll take a shot at that. I think, and you're absolutely right. You know, I um, I remember, you know, teaching sometimes and I'd make a reference to Ronald Reagan and I realized my students were not alive when Ronald Reagan was alive. They have no idea about Reagan's policies. And I think right now the history of 9-11 is being written and our understanding of this period is being um, debated and argued quite vociferously by people who have different sort of uh, strategies in mind and missions in mind and purposes in mind with how they tell that story. Um, and so I think, you know, there's just so much now. I mean, I think the growth of Islamophobia and the challenges that that presented for the Muslim community in this country, um, a, a community that most Americans really didn't understand, um, had no friendship, friends with anyone who was a Muslim American. And to, to most Americans, their experience of Islam was like the nation of Islam as opposed to Sunni. Couldn't tell the difference between, between Sunni and Shia, for example. Um, hopefully we've grown beyond that as a, as a society and we understand more about that. Um, you know, this, you know, this war was not a war of shared or collective experience. It was a, a war in which about 1% of the population fought. And for a lot of us, we were able to go on with our daily lives and, you know, act as if this really didn't matter. I mean, I talk to my students and I tell them, I know no one who served in the military lost their lives, you know, in either one of the two wars. And and over the 20 years, the students that I've taught, very few of them had anyone in their family who had this experience either. So I think we have a, you know, it certainly it is our job to, you know, put this, this into context, but I think we are still working on what that context is and what that understanding of this, this period really is. And I think it makes it all the more challenging to be able to have those conversations with our students, because again, it is a highly contested history. And I think for a number of years, we're going to be debating about whether this war was worth it, whether what we what we accomplished, if anything at all. Um, and I think people, there are sharp divisions with regard to those ideas. 
Janelle, there has been such tremendous loss through this war. And one of the groups who has suffered through this war and raised that question that Bilal mentioned of, was it worth it? Did we actually see some benefit to this? Has been Afghan women and girls who say, we put our lives at risk based on this possibility. And now we feel like those two decades have been pointless because of this recapture of the government. And I want to share with you a quote from a 27-year-old professor that was shared in the New York Times. And she said, I was able to achieve my goals of studying. And for a year, I've been a university professor. And now my future is dark and uncertain. All these years of working hard and dreaming were for nothing. And the little girls who are just starting out, what future awaits them? What are your thoughts on how the fall of Afghanistan poses a challenge to women's rights in the country, but also creates a global question about our commitment to women and girls? I mean, this is such a searing question. And, it, you know, the day after 9-11, I, um, that was the very first uh, college class I ever taught on my own as a new professor. And in my class, there was a woman whose parents were from Afghanistan. She was an Afghani immigrant. And um, also in that class were quite a few people who were in shock and um, who were very angry about, understandably, the terrorist attack. And so these tensions played out in my class, right? And I'm still in touch with many of those students because it was such a, uh, an intense moment for all of us. And the student in my class, the woman from Afghanistan, whose family was from Afghanistan, wrote me, um, you know, the day after the withdrawal and said her family in Afghanistan, her family members were absolutely terrified and heartbroken because of this kind of um, uncertainty that was going to be part of their lives going into the future. And so... You know, I think this, again, brings up these issues of is how are we going to lead and and in our, how will we lead on these issues of gender equality? But also, you know, there's there is also a real concern about uh, is, is U.S. presence, military presence, the way to achieve those goals. And so that, I think, is what we are all struggling with here domestically, you know, we can teach these issues as you, as you asked us about, you know, the issues are the same. And that was also very heartbreaking to me as I, as I communicated to this student, the issue of national security versus civil rights here and the tensions between them continue to be almost exactly the same. And I know, you know, this is something that, that Americans struggle with and we have not done it right in many instances. That was Bilal Sekou from the University of Hartford, Maya King from Politico, and Janelle Wong from the University of Maryland. After the break, a look at reproductive rights in Texas and the power of state legislatures. And later, the legacy of actor Michael K. Williams. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. All the angels sing about Jesus' mighty soul. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Because the statute makes it too risky for an abortion clinic to stay open, 
abortion providers have ceased providing services. This leaves women in Texas unable to exercise their constitutional rights and unable to obtain judicial review at the very moment they need it. This kind of scheme to nullify the Constitution of the United States is one that all Americans, whatever their politics or party, should fear. That was U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Today, a politics roundtable with Bilal Sekou, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. Maya King is National Politics Reporter at Politico, and Janelle Wong is Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland. Later, we remember the talented Michael K. Williams, famous for his role as Omar Devon Little in the TV series The Wire. But now we turn our focus to a new abortion law in Texas. Senate Bill 8 bans abortion after six weeks, and it gives new power to private citizens to report those they suspect of breaking the law. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to rule on the law, and it bolstered the pro-life movement. I asked Maya about the current threat to women's and reproductive rights globally and nationally. Well, I think you've started to answer a lot of, a lot of this, right? Like, I think at the root of this is um, a fair amount of hypocrisy, which a number of people um, are now really, I think, across the country understanding. Again, thinking about this as a campaigns reporter, a lot of what this boils down to is um, that the fact that a number of states are controlled by Republican-held state legislatures. What I'm learning through my reporting and what, I'm, what I think a lot of my sources and others are, are telling to me and realizing is that those state houses have a lot of power and have a really direct impact on just everyday um, daily decisions. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing in Texas. And the reason why that is so jarring and so scary is because it has a trickle-over effect um, you've seen state lawmakers in Florida already start exploring the possibility of, uh, of enacting similar legislation, the same for Georgia. And that's not just women's rights, that's also voting rights. That's going to be a huge, huge storyline and that you've already seen the success um, of those very restrictive voting rights bills across the country. So that's what I'm thinking about it as, is a campaign issue, but also just a general politics issue. And it's a little bit scary, I think, to see the, the trajectory um, of, of, of the current state, really of this country through the lens of these state houses because it, sh- it reveals in many ways what the um, priorities of a number of these lawmakers are. And it's easy to point fingers um, at national lawmakers because those are the people who usually have the larger platforms. And yet really what's taking place a little bit closer to the ground are things that are limiting, again, women's agency, access to the ballot for black, brown and low income folks and a number of other provisions I think that we'll see um, between now and next year that really at this moment, there are fewer tools to fight against. um, And that's also part of this problem. Just to jump in for a second, and just to sort of piggyback on both of these comments, I think the other piece of this story about what's going on at the state level, I think also is about the power of dark money in our political system, the role of um, right-wing uh, think tanks and, and other sort of conservative institutions that are p- 
providing the ideas, the model pieces of legislation, organizations like ALEC, for example, which most Americans know little or nothing about and the role that they're playing in all of this. I think the second piece of this that I think is incredibly important and you know, Maya has really pointed that out is that you know, often we think about the federal government as the place where all the action is at. And the reality is that what will probably affect our day-to-day -day lives occurs at the state level and at the local level, and especially the role the state legislators, legislatures play. And so when you've got national organizations that are creating uh, model legislation that lawmakers are introducing and in state after state that looks the same, all they do is change the state's name, but pretty much the bills look the same, whether it's on voting rights, or issues like abortion rights, for example, and this stuff is getting introduced, that becomes a part of the impact. And the third you know, piece of this puzzle, I think also is the role that groups like the Federalist Society have played in the way in which the National Republican Party, especially Mitch McConnell, played the long game and really tried to stack the courts with conservative jurists that when these issues came up, come up before the court, um, that those conservative jurists will in fact allow these things to happen. And so, um, and, and they're on the court, as we know, these appointments are lifetime appointments. And so we're looking at a generation or two and some of these folks are really young. They tend to live a long time. And so we may be looking at decades of this kind of influence um, from those conservative jurists They've got the gerrymandering to do in the states, which will cement in place some of their power and ability to continue to do these kind of things. And so um, we've we've got a long sort of you know challenge ahead of us on these issues of women's rights and voting rights and and other sort of key civil liberties that people are prepared to actually attack and are under attack in our country. My my question to follow up on that is: to what extent will uh, opponents of these policies be able to use them as a mobilizing um, force. And it's a little bit unclear, I think, and that is kind of scary because on the one hand, you know, these some of these policies seem an existential threat in some ways to the way that we think about not only gender and reproductive rights, but also about voting rights. And one of the things that we know about American politics is that attention is highest when we're thinking about national politics. But state level politics is not something that captures the public administration very much. And so there is this concern, will that change? Will now, as this, as, as Maya said, this have this kind of crossover, spillover effect into other states, make these national issues and will it galvanize voters or do, is this like some kind of brilliant nefarious scheme where because it's playing out at the local, more local and state level, does that shield uh, conservatives from some of the like most powerful kinds of mobilization because people just don't pay as much attention to state politics? I mean, I think they are now, but it, but it looks like Maya might have, a, have something to say about this. Yeah, I, I think we can look at Georgia as, as one indicator of just how this could go. So we saw in 2018 um, what many believed was a strategic effort to limit the power of Black voters um, in order to secure a win for Governor Brian Kemp, who was also the Secretary of State. So he was like overseeing the process that he was running in. 
that galvanized a lot of voters, particularly black voters who are at the base of the Democratic Party and a huge block in Georgia to turn out in mass, you know, numbers that eclipsed Obama 2008, just huge historic numbers to secure not only um, the Senate, but also uh, the state on behalf of Joe Biden. It was like this huge victory. And a lot of organizers, like activists on the ground who played a key role in making sure that there was the foundation who were laying the groundwork essentially um, for these folks to turn out and understand what was happening have been really really frustrated now with this messaging coming out of not only the white house but democratic top brass saying well we can just out organize this voting rights bill again i mean that was really the message that has been the message of late and voting rights activists are like do you know it took us a decade to be able to organize on this level, it's not just a matter of, you know, getting voters upset and letting them understand that their rights are under attack. So this is how they turn out. I mean, what what I think Georgians in particular are up against is not just um, the the bills that act that limit access to the vote. They confuse voters. They change precincts. They limit the number of ballot drop boxes. If you know, for example, next year, I hope we're not, but if there's, if we're still in the pandemic and there's a, a public health, uh, there are public health concerns, I think they've limited the number of ballot drop boxes from thousands to just a couple of hundreds now. So you're thinking about a lot of these older, rural, low income, black and Latino voters who once really had, as everyone should, easy access to the ballot now finding that not only do they not have that, but they don't actually know what their alternatives are. And so this question of whether or not, you know, this will be able to rile up the base is one that I'm really interested in seeing, because I think that on the one hand, you have a number of voters who have been, voters who, <laughs> who were born into Jim Crow, right? Who did not actually, who were born without the right to vote, who are like, I'm always going to find a way to get to the ballot and make sure that my voice is heard, who now have a number of extra roadblocks in front of them. And that organizers who have made it easiest for them to be able to get there now saying, actually, this is not something that will take us a year to organize around. They're still learning the mechanics of all of these bills and how they work and are really asking for some kind of federal assistance that hasn't really crystallized. In fact, instead, what they have gotten is, as I said before, this messaging that says we believe in you. We know that Democrats love to turn out. We know that this is something that we can make happen. But it would be, um, they, they could very well, Democrats could very well be in for a, a rude awakening this time next year when those results that they thought they would get in 2020 don't really crystallize in, in 2022. Yeah, Maya, I think your point about the sustainability of all of this, and if the onus is put on the people who are suffering under these configurations, that's what we'll call them, is it really realistic to expect them then to be able to have the resources to continue fighting to address that long game that Bilal talked about, right? The opposition seems to always have more resources, more people that it can deploy and do it strategically so that people can have a short-term win. But in the long term, as you know, some of your reporting has shown in Georgia, these things that become baked into the law that don't reach public attention can have these long-term consequences. And the other thing that I'll ask, and I'll throw this out to any of you who wants to join in, this fear that I have that now that Texas has made this change to its law and that it has heightened the role of private individuals 
to seek this out and to enforce it, this sets a very dangerous precedent that is not new in the United States. We certainly saw that during the civil rights movement with people doing these things because they thought they were upholding the law. Any of you want to weigh in on that, of the role of private citizens in helping government and helping Republicans to circumvent the constitutional? In, in many ways, when I you know, first heard about that, I, I just sort of thought about the role, you know, the way in the past, for example, people were empowered to um, track down, you know, runaway slaves, the way in which vigilante um, and mob violence has been um, excused and actually uh, embraced, you know, throughout history within our country. And so for me, it, it brought back sort of memories of that and that sort of use of those tactics where you empower citizens to, you know, to take the, you know, the violence that we generally give to the state to have the power over to act violently in people's lives. And so that was my sort of the initial you know, reaction to it. And, and I don't think that's gonna change much because it is a, a strategy that is, has been used um, particularly in the South throughout the history of, of the region. And so in that sense, it didn't come as a surprise to me that they did that. I think in, in some ways, and also kind of thinking about Janelle's question you know, to us earlier about, you know, one of the things that has to happen, and I think what the right has clearly concluded that is that this is an existential crisis for them, that what they're faced with, when they look at the demographic changes that are occurring in the, in the country, when they look at the cultural changes that have occurred over the last few decades, especially in the post-civil rights era, um, this is an existential moment for them. What has to happen for those of us who are opposed to this is that we also need to view this as an existential moment that this is that we we are in the fight for our lives we're we're fighting for the kind of country we want to live in i often tell my students that you know you have to when you leave this place you have to go out there and you have to fight for the kind of world that you want to live in no one is going to give you that world that's a world that every generation that has changed america um, you know, they had to fight for because the people who are in power have not have really refused to give up that power and any opportunity they get that they can take back some of those rights, right, that they can create barriers and obstacles to social and, and, and economic mobility in society, any opportunity they can take away you know, racial rights that have been hard fought for and people have sacrificed mightily for, these folks will do that. And that there is a constant need to be vigilant and to engage in struggle. But I think we're at that moment now where unless we see this as the existential threat that it actually is, um, they will continue to do these kinds of things like we see in Texas, you know, empowering people to essentially be vigilantes is, is about as, it's, that's about as crazy as it gets, but it's what they're doing right now. Oh, yeah. mm. This hour on Disrupted, a politics roundtable with Bilal Sekou from the University of Hartford, Maya King from Politico, and Janelle Wong from the University of Maryland. When we return, we talk about a rising star in the California Republican Party and what he means for political rhetoric in America. And later, we honor the life of actor Michael K. Williams. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. 
I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. California Governor Gavin Newsom was celebrated early in the pandemic for his strong leadership. But reports of Newsom violating his own COVID restrictions and a struggling economy led state Republicans to rally for a recall election. The recall attempt failed, according to the Associated Press, and Newsom will remain in the governor's seat until 2023. I'm joined today in a roundtable conversation with Bilal Sekou, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. Maya King is National Politics Reporter at Politico, and Janelle Wong is Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland. Ask Janelle to tell us about conservative talk show host and politician Larry Elder and how his rise to power in California may shape his role as a prominent Black Republican. So this is a really interesting election. There's a recall election in California in which the um, challenge, the top Republican challenger is a Black conservative commentator who has a kind of stellar um, profile in terms of um, Ivy League education and is quite a libertarian and even, um, you know, has been named by Um, the Democrats in that state as the black face of white supremacy, which is, you know, a very uh, ripping kind of charge. I will say that I'm not surprised by this rise in California. I'm from the, uh, I'm from the most uh, conservative county in California, which is a rural county uh, that is three hours north of San Francisco. And it has been steadily Republican for my entire life. Um, and Larry Elder, you know, is, is attracting, even if, even if Larry Elder doesn't garner full support, the media attention to this, this campaign, to Elder's campaign has been off the charts. Larry Elder is dominating. And it's partly because maybe the, and so the question is with all that coverage, will Elder provide a blueprint for other candidates of color who want to make it in the Republican Party. And, you know, I think Republicans really like the Elder campaign, not only because it's sort of sensationalist and and the law will will comment on some of the like kind of more incendiary claims Elder has made, but there's something fundamental about the way that Elder has run this campaign around race. And that is this kind of um, way of, I mean, in the Asian American community, we, we think about it as the model minority myth, which is that yes, race exists. Yes, there are there is racial discrimination, but elder and other conservatives minimize the role of racial discrimination and say that racial discrimination, while it exists, can be overcome through hard work and perseverance and completely absolve themselves of any kind of responsibility in addressing institutional racism, structural racism, and the history of racism in the United States. And so, you know, that is Elder's appeal. Will voters buy it into the future? Will future voters buy this kind of narrative? You know, we see in public opinion that one thing that separates all voters of color from white voters is that they they really believe in government programs. They really believe in a bigger government with more services, in part to address these longstanding 
kinds of institutional inequalities. And so I don't think that this is a blueprint for the future, but I can see why it's so very appealing. You know, Bilal, we're in an era where saying the words critical race theory makes some people act in bizarre ways. Um, You know, we have a political science colleague who has a brand new book out that argues that critical race theory is burning down the republic. But Elder is someone who has said that we owe slave owners reparations because we took away their property by ending slavery. And again, as Janelle said, African-American man making this statement. So what seems absurd to some people will resonate with others to say, of course, that makes sense. Why don't we act on that? What's your reaction to to Larry Elder, not necessarily Elder as a person, but what he represents in this current climate in the U.S.? I mean, you know, without a doubt, you know, people like Elders and and there are a number of other folks, Candace Owens, I mean, there's a, a list of people um, Alan, who is in Texas, I mean, Alan West is in Texas. I mean, there's this long list of people who I think have, who play a very important role in um, sort of the perpetuation of white supremacy and the sort of myth of, for example, you know, some polls show a majority of whites believe that they are now victims of reverse discrimination in our country. And so these people play an important role. They are elevated in that sort of white right wing ecosystem of, you know, and the dominance that a lot of conservative and and right wing sort of um, radio hosts and television um, you know, programs have, and they bring these people out um, to provide cover for uh, white supremacy that exists in our country. And, you know, for some of these folks, it's quite profitable financially to, to do, to play this role uh, as a part of that ecosystem. But I think more importantly, um, it, it, is, it is a way in which this sort of perpetuation of, you know, these sort of, you know, myths about um, Black inferiority, the unwillingness to work hard to, you know, succeed in American society, and the kind of marginalization, and it, it lends justifi- justification to it, the role of the criminal justice system, and the list just sort of goes on and on and on. And it, to me, it's really unfortunate that these folks are not aware of the role in which they are playing and the perpetuation of these problems, and um, but they continue to play that role, which is disheartening to me, to say the least. Maya, I'll, I'll ask you quickly, as a journalist, how do you talk about these issues, understanding how layered and complex they are, how they become this sort of visceral reaction to some people, but the kind of context that you embed into your work is so important. What do you see as what we should be doing here? Well, it's certainly a, an interesting time to be covering race and politics, um, particularly through the lens of last summer's, what we thought was a reckoning on race and racism. But I think in the grand scheme of things, um, at least policy-wise, did not yield as much, I think, as, as a number of people expected. Uh, through the lens of elder, though, I, I do think that uh, candidates of color, particularly those on the right, have employed the same playbook for many years, which is largely not necessarily appealing to voters of color for like their conservative bona fides, saying, of course, that you know black voters are socially conservative, and so my message appeals in some way. I don't think that quite lands. Instead, what I've observed in my reporting and and what I think has proven true is that these candidates largely 
make white conservative voters feel more comfortable belonging to a party that can at times espouse white supremacist rhetoric, but can point to a number of candidates, folks who are members of their party to say, no, not quite. We have representation and we have the people uh, who belong to our party that, that, are, that are doing the work that perhaps we cannot um, on these issues of race. But I think it's, it's already been touched on, you know, here in this conversation is that this, this, uh, this country is growing extremely, ex increasingly more diverse. Um, and that's, I think, stoked a lot of tensions, particularly within the Republican Party. And they're trying to figure out a path forward. And I'm looking again at Georgia uh, with the race that will that could very well be a matchup against uh, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Race is going to come up quite a bit here. Herschel Walker does not really have political experience, but he does have one thing in common with Raphael Warnock and that he is a black man who is widely known in the state of Georgia. And so I think that we'll see this um, as a, a test case of how this works post 2020, um, post January 6th, uh, and, and how all of this kind of fits together. It's really unfortunate because I think there should be space for legitimate, you know, dialogue about, you know, various kinds of policies. And certainly there are policies that conservatives, you know, have that are worth having that conversation about. But to have someone make an argument on a, a, rate, a podcast about how former slave owners should have been paid reparations and perhaps we would not have had the civil war is just, I mean, it's beyond the pale and it's really amazing that, you know, that kind of a person can be taken serious. But after four years of Donald Trump, I mean, you know, it just gives you a sense of just how much we can stretch reality in terms of what we are willing to engage in and the topics we're really willing to discuss. So Bilal, last week we lost Michael K. Williams, who was an amazing actor, dancer, talented storyteller in so many ways. And I've been thinking a lot about what his loss means, not just because this was this amazingly talented person who was found deceased last week in New York, but also looking at the other losses that we've suffered this year. People like DMX and others, Fukon Johnson in California as a comedian, and what it means particularly for black men to be able to have a space of vulnerability and how Michael K. Williams really navigated those spaces in a number of his roles, Lovecraft Country, Boardwalk Empire, The Wire, adding this layer and the texture that often the world does not seem to allow. What are some of your favorite memories of Michael K. Williams? And what do you hope we will learn from his story? I mean, you know, I was actually, I was shocked when I, um, you know, saw this story. I was shocked about um, the sort of discussion about what might have happened in terms of why he um, died. And, you know, I, I saw him as, you know, one of the most accomplished actors uh, of this era. I mean, his ability to play a role and make that role seem so real was just amazing. I mean, the work he did on The Wire and Boardwalk Empire, and, you know, it just really sort of redefined also um, the role that Black men can play, you know, and he really presented um, characters, um, in terms of Omar's character, uh, homosexuality, 
I mean, he just put this on on film and it just seemed so sort of natural. And it really showed the sort of possibilities of opening doors for other actors to be authentic and to be themselves in the roles that they play. And he did it with such ease that it was really amazing. And I think you're right that we have lost some incredible talented, incredibly talented people over the last couple of years. Um, whether it's in acting or the music industry, um, literature, I mean, it's just, it goes on and on. And, you know, there's a new generation of incredibly talented people out there who can hopefully step into some of those shoes um, and prevent, especially for the Black community, these kinds of powerful roles and images and the range of sort of you know, abilities that these folks have is, is just amazing. And um, I'm, I'm still in shock. I found myself just sort of going over the internet, trying to find stuff about what happened because I just thought he was such an incredible actor and a powerful and important role model and presence um, that is going to be lost. Um, and I think, again, I think he has probably opened up doors um, that, you know, over time we will see actors who will be able to come in and to be themselves and will find roles that will allow them to really present themselves and to present Black people in all of the range of, you know, ways that we represent ourselves in America. If you walk through the garden, you better watch your back. Thank you to our panelists, Bilal Sekou, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. Maya King is National Politics Reporter at Politico, and Janelle Wong is Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. We're down in the hole. We're down in the hole.